Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. We are a grateful, grateful people. To be called Christian is to come with an attitude that is grateful to be counted worthy of your name. And that is what we are. And so as we look at your word today, we ask that you show yourself to be far more trustworthy, far more uh, delightful, far better than we could ever imagine for the purpose of enjoying you and obeying you forever. We pray for all of this in your name, amen. So we're working through the book of Proverbs together, and today, as Johnny read, we're in Proverbs chapter 3, looking at the first 12 verses of it. And one of the phrases we use here a lot at Sovereign Hope, it's kind of our slogan, is gospel change for all of life. We really believe that the gospel really does change every aspect of of our life, the cross of Jesus, what he has done to uh, save sinners and restore us to God is something that reorganizes, not just what we do on Sundays, not just the apps we use or the posts we make, but every aspect of our lives, the whole way in which we view our world. Gospel change for all of life is a slogan that's easy to say, to believe, but it's actually one that's difficult to apply by God's grace, this text today wants to help us do just that, and wants to do so by showing the goodness of God. We are all gluttons for goodness. In every area of our life, the primary uh, qualifier we make is, is this good for me? And does it protect me from what is bad for me? It's this desire for goodness that actually makes the gospel so wonderfully attractive because God wants us to come to him, to be saved by him, to be known by him, and to honor him. Why? Because he wants, the sovereign creator of the world, wants what's good for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a lot of us have categories for thinking of God as great or as glorious, even just as God What's being held up today is the important category of seeing God as good. Good for you. It is good for you to know this God. You see, unless you see the goodness of God, God will never be trustworthy enough for you to choose to follow him when things seem hard. But when we see how good God is, how wonderfully he has provided for us, how deep his love is for you, we're just saying that, how deep his love for you, how wonderful, how marvelous it is for you in Jesus, then we learn that he is good and worthy of our trust even when decisions are hard or unclear. Even in times where it seems countercultural and against everything our eyes say to be true and our hearts seem to understand. That's the summary of biblical wisdom. And this uh, idea of trust and reward is central to our text today. In fact, if you have uh, a Bible in front of you, you could look at the first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3, and there's almost a formulaic pattern in them. In it, the odd verses, that's the ones that start with like 1 and 3 and 5, 
Um, I did that right, right? I've been teaching second grade at home, so I feel pretty competent in that right now. Um, Those verses call for some sort of faithful action from you. But then the even verses, two, four, six, eight, who do we appreciate? Those give us some wonderful promise that God provides to our faithfulness. And this is what we're looking at today, and this means the big picture we're going to see is this, is that we can do the hard work of trusting God because Jesus has done the hard work of saving us. We can do the hard work. It is hard, we'll see, to trust God. But we can do it because Jesus has done the even harder work of saving us. We've all heard the phrase, it seems too good to be true. Proverbs 3, 1 through 12, seems too good to be true. This is the tone of it. But if we want to understand it well, we can kind of break it up into two parts. And in verses 1 through 6, the first half, uh, there's kind of this question asked of who wants this? Who wants these wonderful promises? Who wants this quality of life? And that leads us to the second half, verses 7 through 12, which asks an additional question. Who does this? If you desire this, then you should do this. In that part, there are three tests of our trust, three places of direct application which show us if we truly believe God to be good and trustworthy. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read the first part of our passage, and we're going to see our first question, that is, who wants this? Read with me, Proverbs 3, 1 through 6. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For lengths of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. So did you see the three kind of simple responses that we ought to have to this text? First he says, don't forget my commandments. And what is he talking about there? He's talking about the law, the commands that were given um, to God's people in the Old Testament law. Don't forget my commandments. Don't let steadfast love escape you. Trust the Lord. Those are kind of the three summary points we see. And you see these remarkable promises. Don't forget these commands. Why? Because God's commands are meant to bring you peace and longevity, not toil and a short life. Remember this, God gave his law to his people not before he delivered them out of Egypt, but after he delivered them out of Egypt. God's law came on the heels of God's grace, which means when these people encounter God's commands, they encounter those commands already knowing God to be a delivering God and a good God a God who saves, and a God who delights to do it. But don't we often forget this when we assess our own responses to him in terms of obedience and honor? As a parent, I know how difficult it is to sometimes convince my children to trust me, and I feel like I've done a pretty good job not killing them with the commandments I've given them in life. There are times where they're sitting there and they're saying no to me, and I'm like, what have you done that makes me think I want you to die right now? They're so resistant to obedience, to broccoli, or whatever it is I'm asking them to do, that I'm like, I promise I don't want to kill you. That is not my goal in these commands that I'm giving to you. And yet, how many times do we see God's commands 
his imperatives, and his morality as threats to our joy and peace instead of the life of joy and peace. His commands are meant to prosper us, not to harm us. And additionally, living in God's steadfast love and faithfulness, it should produce, we see in verses three and four, a visible adornment in your life. You should adorn your neck with it. You should write it on the tablet of your heart. And this wins you favor in the sight of God and others. Look at how Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Christians have this aromatic effect. When they are with God like this text prescribes, there is this good aroma, not a foul aroma. I was talking to one member of our community group and he talked about how this lady at work came and asked him about his hope in life because he was living distinctly. Christians, when we seek to faithfully live out God's plan for us in scripture, it will generally be a blessing to those around us and not a burden. It will generally be an aroma sweet unto them and not an aroma pungent. And lastly, to rely on the Lord here is to receive stunning clarity in life. He makes straight what we see are crooked paths. In Proverbs 2, verse 15, it says, the evil men pull you to crooked paths, but here the Lord makes them straight. Makes them clear for you. Now, when we read wisdom literature, which is what Proverbs is, kind of in the biblical span of it, we need to understand some certain things of how we read wisdom literature. Not only is Proverbs showing us how we should live if we fear the Lord, Proverbs is actually showing us how we were supposed to live. It's showing us how God designed us to live. In this way, wisdom literature is idealistic literature. It expresses the ideals, the original plan, and the way things were when God created us all the way back in Genesis chapter one and two when conditions were perfect. In other words, what is being held up for us in the book of Proverbs is that wonderfully beautiful picture that is in all of our cookbooks of the dish that you are about to make. And if you were to perfectly take on the mind and the measuring and the skill of the chef who wrote that cookbook, your dish, when fully completed, would look exactly like that picture. But many of us, when we go through the same steps and we do the same things, our dish does not look like that dish. And the problem is generally not with the recipe, but with you. We didn't do it well enough. So too, when we look at the wonderful promises of Proverbs, we see truths which would have always been true, always been near, always been the wonderful reality of our lives if sin had not crept into the world and disrupted what God had designed through our rebellion. Because we live in a broken world, these ideals show up just like it did with this man at work. These ideals can come up and be generally true. But because of sin, 
Our experiences with such promises in Scripture might be varied. It might turn out differently, but that's not because God is not true or this is not what we were designed for. This shows the problem of sin, which is what Christ came for. And we need to understand the nature of God's ideals in Scripture and how we understand them because our experience is not always idealistic, is it? If we look at verses 1 and 2, he says, If you remember his teaching, you will see long life and peace. Verses 3 and 4, If you do not let steadfast love forsake you, you will find peace with God and man. Now, if we just look at our world today, we see that these are not always true. Do Christians always have a long life? No. In following Jesus, do we always have favor with man? No. In fact, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus says, and he equips his disciples to understand that you will be hated on account of my name. In fact, this might sound countercultural to Western ears or what our media might present to us, but there is no more persecuted religious minority in the world than Christians. So why is it that you would choose to be one? What makes this so compelling? Because everything about God's ideals that were lost through the fall and sin are restored in part now and in full later through the promise of Jesus Christ to redeem what was broken, to take the punishment of sin on himself and to start the wonderful process of recreation spiritually now and physically in the new heavens and the new earth. And we begin to see this plan of God to be true, to bring back these ideals already in verse 3. In verse 3, we begin to see the promise of the gospel. And the grammar here, when it's saying, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, is pretty wild. He's saying, you already have these things. Don't let them forsake you. Don't let them turn on you. You have been loved with steadfast love. You have experienced faithfulness. And what is he referencing there? He's referencing God has delivered you out of slavery. He's delivered you from Egypt. And now he says, don't let those things forsake you. Don't let them leave. Hold on to them. Keep them. That word steadfast love is the Hebrew word we spoke of briefly last week, chesed. It's God's rich covenantal love towards his people. It is a love that is enduring and makes plans to establish it in full. said in this understanding, understanding God's steadfast love towards his people is a keen awareness that God desired to go to that which was broken and redeem a people. To call a people out of slavery, to call a people out of brokenness, back to a right relationship with him so that they could fear God, that huge theme in the book of Proverbs. And therefore, Hased in this, in Proverbs chapter 3, acknowledges that God would bring this blessing of covenant love, guard this blessing, keep this blessing upon his people, if only they would choose to walk in, to stay in, and to continue in his love. That's the point he's making. He's saying, bind them on your heart. Keep them around your neck. What, is, what are the them? It's the teachings and the commands of verse chapter one. If you want to continue in God's love, the father is saying here in this text, 
then stay near to God by obeying his commands. If you want all of this wonderful covenant-keeping love, then don't go back to slavery. That's what verse 4 implies when it says that in keeping these, it grants you favor in the sight of God. God is immensely pleased with you. He wants to love you. He wants to lavish his promises and his steadfastness towards you. The problem is, is that Israel did not want to keep the law. Israel got distracted by the pictures and all of the other cookbooks that were around them. They failed to follow what God had given to them. They chose to trust false promises of goodness instead of God's promise of goodness. The law offered goodness and grace. Stay in this love that God himself has established by his grace. But they can never keep the law. They can never follow the recipe. But all of that changed when Jesus came. Jesus fulfilled the law. He kept the recipe, even in a broken world. Look at how Hebrews chapter 10 speaks of this. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. For by a single offering, he, that's Jesus, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, so now he's quoting the Old Testament here. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Do you hear Proverbs 3, verse 3? Then he adds, I will remember their sin and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so here we see how is it that we have We've been justified in the sight of God, that we have favor in the sight of God. It is through Jesus Christ. How is it that you know that despite your sin and your brokenness at times, that God will actually keep his steadfast love for you? How is it that you know that God will be faithful to you tomorrow? Because if you stand in Jesus, you stand in all of this completed. If you stand in Jesus, you stand in the one who had perfect favor with God. You stand in the one who fulfilled the law to a T. You stand in the one who refused to get distracted by the false pictures of goodness and the other cookbooks saying that this is good. And through faith, all of that is bound to you in your salvation. Jesus gives you all of the things which your sin disqualified you from. And he begins the restorative process of winning back what sin had lost. And in this Jesus, though now we will not have perfect peace in this world, he promises peace in this world. And he promises life, even in death, eternal life. Jesus rescues us from the steadfast punishment our sins deserved. And instead he brings us into the steadfast promise of God's love. Jesus then makes it possible for you to know how God would want you to live. Look at how John the Baptist introduced 
was introduced in the book of Mark, this one who came to herald Jesus. And look at how this allegory that Solomon is using of path shows up in Mark chapter one. So speaking of John the Baptist, who's preparing the way for Jesus, says this, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so John's role was to make clear the straight path which would be shown in Jesus. The path of wisdom, the path that leads to life is the person of Jesus, the one who came to show us how we should live and where danger is and how we can experience the goodness of God's steadfast love towards us. And this Jesus came and what did he call his disciples to do? To follow him. This is the way. This is the path. In God's providence, he might choose in your life to bring thick clouds of darkness that obscure what might lie ahead. But in the gospel, Jesus has come so near to us that no matter how thick the cloud, we can still see the one who we're called to follow. And we can follow him. We can trust him. And we can make our way down this path. You see the wonderful reality of God's covenant love in this text. You get clarity on life's road. You get restored relationships with God and with man. And you get the promise of fruitfulness all the days of your life. Who wouldn't want that? That equips us to just receive what he wants you to receive in verses 5 and 6 where he now says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. This verse is a verse that perhaps you've heard before. It's a verse that whenever I read it, I want to say it a different way because I learned a song when I was little that had different words. We're familiar with this verse. It seems at first glance simple to do, but this is actually the pivot on which this whole passage hinges. If we see that God has been faithful to us in Jesus to deliver us from death, to bring us back to God, to provide clarity in life, right? Those were the promises of God we saw in that first passage. Then why, says Solomon in Proverbs 3, would you think you could trust yourself? Why would you lean on your own understanding? You see, it's easy to think, especially in a culture which elevates human freedom, that our understanding of our path and our plans can coexist peacefully with God's path and God's plans. But here we see that they can't. And at this point, we don't look at this and say, well, that's lame. Because we look at what God has done in the gospel and we say, I can't do any better. (laughs) I can't do these things. I don't have this kind of clarity in life. I don't have this kind of peace in death. I don't have this kind of blessing upon blessing of God's steadfast love towards me. Why would we think that God is holding out on us when God did not even withhold from us the blood of his son? Do you see that this God wants what is good for you? And he sent Jesus to take what was bad for you, the punishment of your sin. 
You see, the task of the Christian who stands inside of the steadfast love of Jesus is a path that acknowledges God's deliverance on all of your ways. In all of your ways, you know this God. In all of your ways, you acknowledge his mercy. My wife and I took uh, our honeymoon to the Bahamas. And at the Bahamas, they drive on the opposite side of the road that we do. We didn't have a car at the time, but we found out the people in the condo next to us had a car, and they were going to the same beach that we wanted to go to. And so uh, they invited us to go with them, and Sarah and I sat in the back, and we watched them drive. And it was humorous. Um, They just had these big, gregarious personalities. It was a couple from Ohio. And every time uh, they went to turn, they would say to each other, left to live, left to live, in order that they would stay on the left side of the road on every corner and not go into oncoming traffic and kill us all. And this is a wonderful illustration of what it means to acknowledge God in all of our ways. You see, it wasn't that this man didn't know how to drive, that he was unfamiliar with a car or how roads worked. And yet the whole of what he knew was completely turned around. So that whether it was at a traffic light, or a stop sign, or a traffic circle, he knew he needed to remind himself of this truth, that there was something good for himself in it. And in the language that Solomon is using in Proverbs 3 of adorning it on our neck and writing it on the tablet of our heart, it's meant to show us that we need those visible reminders, those audible encouragements to remind us of the promise of Jesus so that on every way we acknowledge what he's done, that it really shapes what we do with our careers, our relationships, our finances, and our free time. And I hope at this point you ask yourself, I get that, it's right there, but what does this look like? What does it look like to acknowledge God in all of my ways, to lean not on my own understanding? Or maybe you think, well, I already do this. Well, to both those who might be overconfident and those who need confidence, God in his grace is about to show us what this looks like. If you want this kind of life, if you want these blessings of peace with God, clarity in life, and flourishing all of your days, then you should do these things. These things which are to follow are a sign that you trust a God like this. And this is our second point today. Who does this? If you want these things, you do these things. This is why he opens up the second half of this passage by using this illustration. 3 verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. In other words, what is about to follow as a father speaking to his children only makes sense if we understand God's goodness. If we look at this, trusting in what our eyes see or what our minds understand, then it will never make sense to us. Instead, what is about to follow are actions and beliefs which can only be true when we are willing to humbly surrender our own understanding and realize that in God's steadfast love in Jesus, he has provided for us everything that we cannot wander into lack when God has provided for us like this. He gives us three tests, 
three places where we can actionably see and apply this trust in real time. These three tests are, we'll look at these as a whole and then we'll circle back. The test of peace, the test of honor, and the test of comfort. I'm going to read this and then we'll look at each of these just shortly as a way of application. Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all you produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So if you want access to a God like this, if you want to see what it looks like to know more and more of his steadfast love, here are three tests, three comforts for you in this. The first test we see is the test of peace, verse seven and eight. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, for it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And here again, we find this idea of the fear of the Lord. If you're just picking up in this series of Proverbs, how Solomon uses the fear of the Lord in Proverbs can be simplified to just a reverent reliance on God. It's not just having this sense of afraidness of God that we're too scared to go, go to him, but it's actually we're so afraid of him that we only want to go to him, that we rely on him in every area of our life. And here, the first test is, is if you rely on God, if you have a fear of the Lord, you'll turn from sin. Why? Because you trust that an obedient reliance upon God is exactly what will heal you. It is in this sense a reliance upon God which is medicinal treatment for the wounded soul. It refreshes, it revives. And this actually helps us, these are why Proverbs are so great, these comparisons and contrasts. It helps us not only understand the goodness of God, but it helps us understand the why behind our sins, doesn't it? Why is it that we refuse to turn away from evil? We turn to evil and we participate in sinful things because we think that that act of sin or of evil or of disobedience, that it has the ability to heal us and to refresh us. Haven't we all experienced this? Who among us hasn't had a physiological craving for what is evil. Whether it's the promise of relaxation that comes from drunkenness or mindless entertainment, a gluttonous desire for whatever food demands our consumption, or the insatiable longing for sexual gratification. We feel in our bones these desires and we want to turn to these evil devices because we think that once we take that pill, it will solve our ailment, ease our minds, and satisfy our hearts. But have we ever found that to be true in any lasting way? Have we ever found ourselves to be refreshed after sin, at peace after evil, satisfied after disobedience. As we continue to read in Proverbs, we're going to be introduced to the song of Lady Folly. And it is a song for your soul. It promises healing balms, relief, 
satisfaction. And not just satisfaction, but soul satisfaction. It speaks to your heart as God wants to speak to your heart. But the medicine of the world is poison to our souls. But if we see God's steadfast love in Jesus Christ, we realize that it is he alone who promises healing and refreshment. Where our hearts look to unrighteousness to find this satisfaction. Jesus in Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and search for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Or look at how Galatians 5, verse 1 puts this. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do, sub- do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. To fear the Lord is to be set free from medicinal balms which harm us, things which never satisfy, and instead you are free to rest on God's wonderful grace. And here is this great truth in Proverbs 3, verse 8. If you are one who looks at this and you say, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can turn away. I'm in too deep. Here, see that God wants your wounds. God is not calling, as Jesus says, those who are healthy to himself. He is calling those who are hurting. The cross is so big to take care of the festering wounds of your soul. God wants you to come. He wants you to have that experience of peace. He wants you to experience this. But to do that, to have that, you must turn from evil, and that takes trust that God is working for your good in Jesus Christ. If you wrestle with turning away from evil and trusting God's goodness, which all of us do at times, that's why God gives us the church. Talk to someone about it and and confess this. Say, I'm struggling to see God's goodness. I'm struggling to wean myself from the medicine of the world. And it is our job to link arms with you and to go to the cross together. Because to acknowledge God is not to trust what your eyes see about sin, but instead to trust what God himself says about sin. That's the test number one. The second test is the test of honor. Look again with me at Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I'm interested to know what you thought was read when we read that verse. How many of us read this text and immediately our minds here give to the Lord with your wealth? Donate to the Lord with your wealth. And by that measure, perhaps you thought you've already applied this passage because you've given. Or maybe you're sitting in here and you say, of course, the one day I come to church is the one day where the church is now again asking for my money. (laughs) But that's not what Solomon's after here, is it? That's not the words that Solomon is using. Instead, Solomon is saying, honor the Lord with your wealth, and with your first fruits. This goes far beyond what we give. But it does change our actions in three practical ways. First, it does change how we give. We give not because God needs our money, but we give because God's after our honor of him. Giving and generosity is like a break check for our soul. 
It checks to make sure that you are relying on something which is certain and not putting false rely or not putting reliance upon things which when tested in the day of trial will lead you smack dab into a wall. Generosity, we love as humans, as law keepers, we love quantifying lists about ourselves, right? All you anagram people. And here God actually gives you a quantifiable feature for your honor. And that's your wealth. To not honor God with the Lord is to show on a quantifiable level that God's got work to do in your soul to wean you from reliance on things and win a reliance upon him. Secondly, and this applies to everyone, but I want to speak specifically to those college students who are in here who, in looking at this word wealth, find it to be a foreign idea to you. God wants to honor you to honor him, not just with your wealth, but with your first fruits. And by including wealth and first fruits, what he's doing is he's not just speaking of the money you have, he's actually speaking of the whole sum of your career, your studies, your degree, the sum of your whole vocation in this sense is meant to be used towards the end of honoring God and not honoring yourself. You see, so many times it's easy to look at our wealth, perhaps, and think, I can honor God with this, but we actually deny God honor with the rest of our careers. What would it look like for all of us to consider the way in which the hours on the time clock or in class or on Zoom, or whatever it is you find yourself these days, that those are things that show honor to God, not just the percentage which you give from your paycheck. Would you find that the relationships you have, the end you're working towards, the degree you're getting, all of those are meant to serve God's wonderful purpose of expanding his, the fame of his name in our world. And lastly, honoring God with your wealth not only shapes what you give, but it shapes what you get. If, you, if God were to look at your purchase history on Amazon, would he be honored? Would he look at that and say, this person certainly enjoys things, and they enjoy them at a right level where they understand that I am the one who ultimately satisfies? Or will he look at that purchase history or your reoccurring orders, and will he say, you're trying to purchase something that only I can provide? Do our purchases honor the Lord? If God has provided for us in the most costly and eternal way by the blood of his son, then aren't we able to, shouldn't we ought to be able to trust him to provide for us in physical ways? To really believe this is to realize that obeying God will not destroy you. You will not honor God so much that you will end up in poverty. No one needs to risk no, like alleviate the burden of thinking that if you honor God, you will end up a horrible wreck in life. But he seems to assume in this text that we would actually think that, don't we? That's what he means when he says, if you do this, you'll never run out of what you need. Your barns will be full and your vats, whoever has your vats, good news, it's gonna be super full. Now this sounds like, and we should be cautious, this sounds kind of like a false gospel that's out there today called the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel says, if you uh, obey God, if you give your money, God will reward you, kind of like a genie with health, wealth, and prosperity. This is not the prosperity gospel. But I do want to make it clear, a theme we'll see in Proverbs, that God does desire to prosper you. 
The language we read in Proverbs should lead us to, to look at the prosperity gospel teaching and realize that they're after good things. God wants you to be satisfied. He wants you to be happy, but he also wants you to realize that that happiness and that satisfaction does not come from the things that God gives, but from God himself. And that is so important. And how do we know that this isn't the prosperity gospel? Because immediately after we see Proverbs 3.10 promising God's generous provision to those whom he loves, we see in verses 11 and 12 God's discipline for those he loves. Played out right before our eyes is the, the theology that God gives and God takes away and behind both is God's delight for him or for you. This is where we see our third test, the test of comfort. Proverbs 3.11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Our world is frantic about comfort. Every product you purchase is based on a promise to make your life easier and more comfortable. Trusting in God and not trusting in your own eyes demands that we realize the false promise of worldly comfort. Worldly comfort has no category for biblical discipline. The world says if it hurts and if it's hard, it's hardly worth it. But here's the promise of the Lord's discipline of those whom he loves and in whom he delights. Did you catch that astounding promise in here? The discipline that Solomon is talking about is actually a tangible and real experience, not of God's displeasure or of his abandonment, but his, of his immense love and delight for his children. And so what do we mean when we talk about discipline here? Well, it's football season, which means you get a football illustration. And sometimes if you were to drive and you see a, uh, a high school team practicing at the fields, like the Hellgate Fields downtown, you could see a group of football players running, and it could be that they are running sprints because they messed up. They're being punished for something. This is a discipline from the coach in order to correct those who erred. But sometimes you might run by that same field. You might see those same players running those same lines, but it's not to correct them. Instead, it's actually to make them faster, to make them better football players. This also is discipline. You see, God's discipline sometimes comes into our life when we are in error and it wakes us up to the wrong that we're doing. And this, just like a father, is done towards children whom he loves. God disciplines and corrects because he wants what's best for you. But sometimes, when we experience discipline in life, it is not because we're doing something immensely wrong or we have some hidden sin. Sometimes God is just calling us to run sprints because he wants us to have more strength to follow him. He wants us to rely on him more and more even when things are hard. Why does he want that for you? Because he so delights in you. Because he has sent his son to save you and his desire for you is that you would be conformed more and more into the image of his son. The author of Hebrews quotes this very proverb and then look at what it says afterwards in Hebrews 12 verses 7 through 13. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and lives? For they discipline us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, listen here, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather what is, but rather be healed. God's discipline is meant to comfort us. It's so simple to say, it is so contrary our own understanding. The difficulties in this life which wean you from your own eyes and your own understanding are meant to explode for you the beauty of the God who we get to rely on as our Father. It is meant to lift your drooping knees and strengthen your, droop, your lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. This means that those who trust in God do not need to fear these moments of life's hardship because in those moments, whether through correction or through strengthening, you are experiencing God's immense love for you. If we worship the idol of comfort, you will loathe what God wishes to use to love. But if we see that in Jesus, our greatest punishment, the only punishment we needed to fear, which was eternal damnation for our sins, if that has been removed, then we can trust this God to discipline us for his glory and for our good in all the places in life. We endure in hard times, not because God is disappointed in us, but here in Proverbs three twelve, it is because he delights in us and he wants you to delight in him more and more and more and more. And here's the wonderful way in which this proverb has gone. The first part of the proverb was talking about your heart towards God. And by the end, we're seeing God's heart for you. God wants you to know his steadfast love in Jesus and in so doing, spend the rest of your life trusting that he knows what is good. In the gospel, God has shown us that through Jesus, he is restoring us to a trust which gives us a greater experience of his love in life's highs and in life's lows. So let us trust in him. Let us know God is good. Let us lean not on our own understanding, but instead through the understanding God has given us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray that even as we um, transition into a time of confessing our sin, that you would help us know your goodness in a way which only you can. We ask that in this room, this sermon has the effect of strengthening what was weak and putting in place what was broken, of bringing healing to us as we seek to fear you. Lord, we pray that we experience all of your goodness, all of your love, all of your faithfulness, so that it encourages us to trust you more and more in all of life's decisions. We pray this in your name. Amen.